Who you put your trust in matters. Investors have put their trust in independent registered investment advisors to the tune of $4 trillion. Why? Learn more at findyourindependentadvisor.com. Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen with David Gura. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on iTunes, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. Howard Ward, as I said with us, Chief Investment Officer at Gabelli Funds, Director of Growth Equities at Gamco. Good morning. Great to have you here. Thanks, David. Great to be here. In your most recent note, you caution investors, beware. A bit of rain here uh, on the parade. But, but uh, what, what's the cause for caution? Well, the stock market has uh, reacted very enthusiastically to the uh, election, which is uh, appropriate. But I think we need to bear in mind a couple of things as we move into the new year. First of all, uh, the pro-growth policies that Trump is advocating, which is reducing corporate and and individual income taxes, uh, deregulating uh, parts of the economy, um, a massive infrastructure spending bill, uh, those are all positive. We don't really know yet exactly what he's going to do on protectionism, which has been another thing he has advocated. We would be very negative on moves to impose tariffs on imports. But uh, beyond all that, let's not forget, the stock market's at an all-time high, so valuations are not cheap. This is not like 1980 and Ronald Reagan. Uh Um, Interest rates have been going down for 35 years, uh, so unlike, again, 1980, when rates were high, poised to go lower, rates are low and poised to go higher, uh, not only because of percolating inflation and labor costs, but because... Uh, we're looking at uh, Fed uh, rate increases and uh, you know, getting the Fed increasingly out of the way in terms of the bond market. Let's not forget that even though the Fed is poised to raise rates in December, uh, they, of course, they raised rates a year ago. Sure. But let's not forget, the Fed is still reinvesting the coupons and maturities on the bonds it's holding in its portfolio. So while it's not expanding its balance sheet, it's still, it is still active in the market in sopping up some of that supply. And so uh, rates will continue to gradually normalize. And so you know rates are rising, uh, valuations are high, expectations are high, and I think uh, profit expectations for next year are probably too high because of the pressure on profit margins. And so, uh, you know, I think investors need to slow down here. This isn't all going to, you know, all this good news we're expecting for the economy, it isn't going to happen overnight, Mm. and Trump isn't going to get everything that he wants. Uh, Slow down, you you urged there on the heels of the election, so much fast movement. I wonder if you were caught up in that when you saw people betting on on the the possibility here of a big infrastructure package going into utilities or uh, looking here at the potential demise of the Affordable Care Act, looking at health care. Were you caught up in that in that world. Well, I have David David Howard Ward's idea of short term is three years. <laughs> <laughs> so I have to tell you that yeah. that uh, in my nearly 40 year c- career on Wall Street, the I've, I've never seen anything like the violent sector rotation that occurred uh, in the immediate aftermath mm. of the election. I think it was three or four days where there was a panic stampede 
into cyclicals and out of countercyclicals. And almost as if price didn't matter anymore. Yeah. And I don't know whether this was uh, computer-generated algorithm-based uh, trading, uh, short covering, um, other momentum-type strategies at work, but it was something that was an eye-opener. And, uh, you know, it, it, it clearly the market had not anticipated a Trump victory, uh, which is why you did have such a violent reaction, I think. But I think the move into a lot of those areas, whether it's the financials or some of the industrials and material stocks, was probably overdone. And we have seen in the most recent week a little bit of reversal with the more uh, uh, counter-cyclical stocks picking up some ground against some of those more cyclical uh, entities. Is there appeal to financials right now? Anything appealing about that sector in particular? I'm underweight financials. I don't view the, m most of the financials, especially in the banking sector, as offering a lot of growth uh, prospects. What you've seen is a big bet that uh, financials will benefit from higher rates. And so um, if that's what people are doing, I don't know what their expectations are, but I don't think interest rates over the next three to six months anyway are going to go much higher. They may after that, but I think we've had a move from 175 to 235 on the 10-year in the last couple of weeks, and I don't really think the fundamentals warrant uh, much additional, if any, interest rate increase over the next few months. So maybe that move in financials, which was really striking, uh, maybe that's about all we're going to get for a while. Howard, um, we're talking here about how to position for next year. Within a broader account, how does an equity guy like you handle bonds? I mean, <laughs> we've had a snapback, to say the least. Yeah. Well, Tom, uh, an equity guy like me doesn't go near bonds. <laughs> Especially after a 35-year bull market in bonds. So, I mean, you and I are seeing Austrian 70-year Yeah, paper. it's like, uh, don't really see any value there. And, uh, of course, I am biased. I've had a career in equities. Sure. Although my first couple of years at Brown Brothers were in the fixed income department there, where I was uh, trying to understand what a bond was on their short-term money desk. But that's when interest rates were 21% on the prime rate. That was actually sort of interesting. So... Um, don't have any uh, attraction to bonds. If you were to look at the real yield on bonds, given today's, uh, call it one and a half, two percent inflation rate, there's not mm -hmm. much of a real yield there. You're not really getting paid uh, for any uh, interest rate risk uh, looking at the, uh, the term premium in bonds, although it's, it's moved up a little bit. Is, is, is the notion of your end positioning different this year because of what we've seen uh, with the election and, and after it? Um, you know, I think that there's been a mad scramble uh, on the part of some investors to put cash to work. Mm -hmm. Now, I've always warned against the dangers of market timing, and this is a perfect illustration of how you can get caught short, caught out of the market um, when a surprise, in this case an election, drives the stock market 5% higher in a few weeks. That's a big move uh, over the period of a few weeks. And if you missed it, you're going to have a difficult time performing this year, unless, of course, things were to reverse, which I, I don't yeah. think we're going to get much of a reversal. Uh, uh, further on the banks, I mean, you say you're underweight the banks? Underweight the banks. What about the distinction between too big to fail and regional banks? That's something that we've barely touched on, it seems, in six months. 
Yeah, well, I think that the uh, the regional banks might offer a somewhat better growth profile, probably meriting a somewhat higher valuation. But I will go back and say the move that this group had uh, in the period since the election, I think, discounts mm -hmm. a lot of good news. And uh, yeah. especially in the case mm -hmm. of the more money center oriented uh, financial institutions okay. like a Goldman Sachs or a JP Morgan. I think Goldman Sachs uh, has gone from about a $172, which was its tangible book value, to well over $200 uh, during this space In of time. In a cup of coffee. Yeah, 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 very quick. And so these are very oh. volatile things. They're almost, some of these financials are almost, you can almost think of them as calls on the capital markets or calls on the stock right. market. Howard Ward with us with Gabelli Funds. Howard, one of the most interesting data points I saw in economics, oh, five, six, eight days ago, was the disparity between traditional retail sales, bricks and mortar, and the double-digit growth of internet-type retail sales. Help us here with our pro like you <laughs> deals with Amazon 10 to 785. Do you just keep owning it? Do you just keep buying it? Do you pray, pray, pray that Jeff Bezos pauses? or wh What do you do? Well, uh, thank you, Tom, because that actually is the largest position in the Gamco Growth Fund that I manage. Uh, Amazon is going to have an outstanding uh, holiday season because they continue to garner additional market share in retailing. The stock pulled back during the vicious rotation in the direction of cyclicals out of counter cyclicals and investors had a bit of a buying opportunity now it still uh, has recovered a bit uh, since uh, since the 14th but it's not at its high it's at 17 times next year's EBITDA that is i think a very attractive price for amazon.com which is not only the preeminent retailer in the country, if not the world, but also the preeminent provider of cloud-based web services through their Amazon Web Services subsidiary. That's mm -hmm. a subsidiary growing over 50% and where they are right. much larger than Microsoft, who is the number two player. What's their growth rate that you strap on your statistic of 17 times earnings before interest taxes, depreciation, right. amortization, and maybe so, the Red Sox will win? So, Tom, we're, we're looking at a company who's, if you look at the projected earnings growth for this company yeah. over 2017 and 18, so looking forward, we're talking about 40 to 45% compounded over those two years. The figure for this year is going to be even higher, but that's sort of behind us now, so we're not going to focus on that. But you're not going with a 40% growth rate. I mean, you, you got to of For a couple of years, and then it, it, will be, it obviously will be, will be coming down. But still, it grows at 20 or 20x percent on a 17 times EBITDA. Right. So yeah. that's what I'm saying is they have a lot of depreciation and amortization. You don't want to value this company on its straight PE. That's a mistake. That's been a widow-making mistake for a lot of short sellers over the last 10 years. Um, Jeff Bezos is a brilliant manager who has done a terrific job executing. And, you know, one of the announcements the company has made recently is to uh, start building their own Air Force, if you will, to help deliver goods. And 
some of the reaction was, oh, my goodness, they're going to take business away from FedEx and UPS. UPS yeah. But no, they're not. They're doing this because FedEx and UPS cannot handle their volumes. So they need to supplement what FedEx and UPS can do with their own uh, air carrier. How much of this still is a bet on Bezos? And, and, and you see folks who invest in Tesla betting on, on Musk in a kind of similar, Elon Musk in a similar way here. It, it makes some investors squirmish to, to, have to, to have to do that. Well, I think Jeff Bezos, who has been doing this now uh, for 16, 17, 18, 20 years uh, at Amazon, has at, at this point instituted uh, terrific management terrific controls, and um, I, I, a culture that, that, that inundates Amazon uh, to focus on long-term growth, not make short-term decisions, and to try to dominate uh, markets over the long haul. So, for example, they announced in the last day or two an interest in getting into live sports streaming uh, trying to negotiate deals with some of the major uh, uh, sports leagues. Now, uh, I don't think there is an agreement that's of any magnitude that's coming up for negotiations anytime soon, but I have no doubt that Amazon will succeed in planting its flag in, I don't know whether it's football, baseball, basketball, hockey, or, or all of the above, but they will be there with the product for their Amazon Prime membership before we know it. We saw Walmart numbers this week better uh, on the online front. They bought Jet.com, have been investing in the, in the website. that inspire any fear here? Does it, does it emerge as a, a bigger competitor to Amazon? No. You can't ignore Walmart, but Walmart is not really a threat to Amazon at this point. And uh, it, it's, it's really mm. two, two different ecosystems. I got about 14 more questions. We run out of time. <laughs> Thank you for sharing your Wednesday with us. Thank you for having me. And happy are you, are turkey. You cooking? Happy turkey. Are you cooking? Yeah. Uh, my wife will be doing more of the cooking than me. I'll be. What will you be doing? I'll be opening the wine. <laughs> Very good. A wise man, Howard Ward. John Tucker, take notes from Howard Ward on how to do things. Okay. Open the wine and just get out of the way. I want to bring in Glenn Hubbard. He is dean of the Columbia Business School, former chairman of George W. Bush's Council of Economic Advisors. It's great to have you with us. Thanks. Good morning. Good morning. Let's talk a bit about day one. Perhaps too much is made of, of day one on the campaign trail, what a president would do uh, on day one. You've been in the White House. You, you've had to deal with the negotiation of setting a, an economic agenda. We hear about tax cuts, tax reform, an infrastructure package, broader fiscal stimulus. What do you think that uh, Donald Trump should tackle on his first day in office? Well, I'm pretty optimistic about the policy agenda that President-elect Trump has set out, and I think the biggest thing is restarting growth, by which I mean convincing business people and all of us that faster growth is possible. And to do that, you've got to sequence things first that really affect growth. And I would target tax <coughs> changes and regulatory changes first, and it looks like the administration's doing yeah. that. Dean Hubbard, good morning. You and I spoke briefly after the Trump lecture at the Economic Club of New York a number of months ago. Andrew Ross Sorkin, among others, writes on Glenn Hubbard, and here's your quote. 
Hubbard, the anti-trade and anti-immigration policies of Mr. Trump portend a slower growth future of all Americans and middle and lower income Americans in particular. If Donald Trump is speaking with the governor of Massachusetts, Mitt Romney, I only can presume he's speaking with the dean of the Columbia Business School. Have you spoken with Mr. Trump and his transition team? I have not. I've certainly spoken to the transition team. I think the the idea of an anti-trade policy as first up seems very unlikely. It's also unwise, but I think it's it's unlikely. Everything one hears from the new administration is really focused on growth. But there, too, priorities matter. You can't get a lot done quickly in Washington, so you have to pick one or two big things and go for it. <clears throat> well, you, you've got experience of that, to say the least. I, I am fascinated by the shift in rhetoric that we're seeing uh, by Mr. Trump right now. We know the politics of that. What's your prism of the shift in economic policy that we see from the president-elect? Well, again, I see it as being very oriented toward growth on tax and regulation. The devil, of course, lies in the details. The good news here is Speaker Ryan and his colleagues have already done a lot of good work here. The administration doesn't really need to reinvent the wheel but the president-elect will have to decide his priorities and fight on them. Remember also that a lot of people who voted for him are very concerned, too, about support for work. And so I think people will be looking for what the president-elect will do for them. On the matter of growth, he, he has said he can get us to 4% growth, maybe north of that as well, from where you sit in, in Morningside Heights. Is that a, a feasible thing? Well, in the near term, the economy can certainly grow much more rapidly to complete its recovery. I think in the long term, the debate is probably more, can we grow you know, less than two or well above two? And I think the well above two between two and a half and three is perfectly reasonable for the long term. But no four. Well, I think you just have to do the math. Four is about productivity and about hours work. So you'd have to imagine an unparalleled productivity boom, and to which I say, may it be so. <laughs> it's great to have that aspiration. The first thing that appeared on the Trump transition team's website was about Dodd-Frank. That was the first agenda item up there. Are you convinced here that President-elect Trump and the transition team has something to plug in there if they are to remove Dodd-Frank? Well, I think with Dodd-Frank, you know, there's some good things in Dodd-Frank. The real issue with Dodd-Frank is it wasn't that related to the problems we went through. I think the administration will have to be surgical. Removing Dodd-Frank is probably harder politically than it is a repeal and replace of Obamacare. But I think there are lots of things to do to change the way Dodd-Frank treated the Fed, the way the Financial Stability mm -hmm. Oversight Committee was structured and so on. Uh, I think there are a lot of things there, but they are in the details. There's nothing, David Gurr, and it's great to have Glenn Hubbard with us to talk about this. There's just nothing like seeing headlines that say stimulus is good for you. Look at the red headline that just came across. Yeah. The United Kingdom adds a gajillion dollars planned borrowing over the next five years. Philip Hammond, the chancellor of the Exchequer, speaking before Parliament, delivering his uh, autumn statement right now, talking about the resilience uh, of the U.K. economy, also revising uh, the forecast for growth. And I think that's the biggest Down. takeaway from what we've heard so far. Down big time. So the, the forecast for 2017 yeah. was 2.2%. 2 .2%, now it's 1.4%. It, these are regime changes. Glenn Hubbard with us with Columbia Business School. Uh, Dean Hubbard, you've lived this. I mean, there's a point where a government has to come out and say these are our best guesstimates. Does the word regime change work here for the United Kingdom? And will we see a regime change for the Trump administration? Policy will have to help. But I think for the U.S., uh, the regime change is going in the other direction. I think faster growth is definitely possible. The question is, will the administration focus on those policies that help first? All signs point to yes. 
talk a bit about the, the relationship between the White House and Congress. We've seen it break down here over the last decade or, or so. Uh, again, you chaired the, the Council of Economic Advisors. I imagine you interfaced with, with legislators on the Hill as well. What can Donald Trump do to improve that, that relationship? Well, I think he starts out, obviously, with a much better initial condition because he has a Republican Congress. And Speaker Ryan, in particular, has been quite busy working on the very things Donald Trump says he cares about. So I I think this could be a very good relationship. At the same time, when you get in the details, particularly in financial regulation, there are members of the House Republican Caucus that may have a different view. So Mr. Trump and Mr. Ryan have their work cut out for them. Uh, Leader McConnell in the Senate is terrific at accomplishing legislation. So I'm, I'm quite optimistic. You know, we, we've seen fiscal hawks circle in the past around the last few debates over the, the debt ceiling, raising the debt limit. Do you expect that to happen again here? What's the, the role of, of the so-called fiscal hawks going to be here as, as this stuff gets worked out? Well, I think we're going to have this discussion in the spring when we come to the debt limit. And I think you will see it from fiscal hawks. A lot will depend on what the administration is doing and what sort of deficits it's proposing. The big deficit issue for the country, of course, isn't whatever it is next year. It's the longer-term issues in the entitlement programs. And I really doubt the president-elect and the Congress are going to tackle those right away. I, I look, Dean, at the hope and the, oh, let's go to the President, president Obama, the hope and the audacity of this economics Tell me how the supply side effect clicks in here. We've had heated debate on surveillance about dynamic scoring, mm. about, about the, the idea that you do action and you can model in the results as you do the action. Is that a good way to make policy? Well, I think it is in the sense that the reason Congress is presumably enacting big change is because it thinks it will have a positive effect. Now, reasonable people can certainly disagree on how large that is, but I don't think reasonable people can disagree that it's not there. The real question is, you know, which policies are going to promote growth the most? That's about really big tax reform and regulatory reform. And the good news is the president-elect and the Congress are talking in those words. So I think we all have to wait and see. Does our lack of trade discussion dampen or eliminate the good news of tax reform? I don't think so. I think the fact that we're not hearing a lot about trade at the moment uh, is a good thing in the sense that if we were to hear a lot of anti-trade talk, I think that would be bad for the long-run growth. You're teaching entrepreneurial finance now, so this might not be a question on the exam you're going to give <laughs> given that class. But if you were to ask your students here to, to define globalization uh, in the wake of this election, in the wake of the, the campaign that we've had, where it seems to have been really called into question or is being reevaluated, how do you, how do you find it today? How would, a, how would a student define that today? Well, see, I think of globalization as openness and interconnectedness within and across countries. And, you know, that moves a lot. The peak of globalization was probably just before World War One, and then resurfaced again in the past few decades after the American-dominated world order after World War Two. You know, globalization doesn't always stay at high levels. It benefits us, but frankly, there are going to be people who are challenged. And I think the real issue that President-elect Trump identified, and I think correctly, is how do we help people who have been challenged by globalization and by the even bigger factor of technical change? And that is going to be the big issue. Amid all the studies about uh, the role that technology has played here uh, with regard to the decline in manufacturing, how much can he do? He's made promises of bringing jobs back. Are, Are you optimistic that we will see a resurgence of manufacturing in this country? 
Well, manufacturing output in this country is, is fine and may well improve. I'm, I'm more skeptical about large-scale manufacturing employment increases. I think what we can do, though, is support work in a variety of industries. Speaker Ryan's talked about this by improving the earned income tax credit. And I would expect the Trump administration to take a look hard at how we can support work for many people in the country. Do you have any understanding of how we get corporations to a belief in U.S. investment? What is the trigger to jumpstart investment by American companies to create American jobs? Well, I think it's a great question, Tom, and there are two big things. First, you have to make business people believe growth is possible again. That's part of what holds investment back. Yeah, fair, fair. And the second is big tax reform. If we make the U.S. the best place in which to invest, whether you're an American company or a foreign company, that will happen. And if we bring the corporate rate down to 15 to 20 percent, which is being talked about, that's an enormous change in the investment climate in the United States. How about consumer sentiment? What can the White House, what can a Trump White House do to improve consumer sentiment? Well, I think for consumer sentiment, it's much the same thing, making sure that people believe that faster growth is possible. The stock market is already signaling that. The administration will have to deliver in terms of policies that help consumers. I, I, I look here at where we are. It seems to be such an important sea change. Do you consider Mr. Trump to have Republican economics is that a fair question? It's so well, I don't much really, different. I don't really know, and I'm not sure that it really matters. The question is, uh, can Mr. Trump accomplish these big things? I, I think he can. You know, the issue in policy is not so much ideas, because frankly, mm -hmm. both sides sort of have very good ideas for their agendas. The question is getting them done. And I think the constellation of Mr. Trump in the White House and the congressional leadership suggests this, is, this can happen. Glenn Hubbard, thank you so much. Greatly appreciate it. Dean Hubbard with the Columbia Business School. Just fascinating, David, the changes in the ebbs. To speak to Martin Feldstein yesterday mm. and then to Glenn Hubbard today, and these are traditional Republicans in the delicacy, the ballet they're having. Both of whom have spent a, a significant amount yeah. of time in Washington and, and, and know how the <clears> place works and... Uh, you know, I detected uh, optimism for both of them, from, from perhaps more from well, Dean Hubbard yeah, than from, I mean, from uh, Professor Feldstein. That's but, uh, what they're going to say. But yeah. you, you, if, if Dean Hubbard gets a call, what's he do? Yeah. And I mean, this is the backdrop, folks. Is, are, are we waiting for a Secretary of State announcement today? We are waiting for that. Is it today? Uh, I, I saw John, a report here. I have a tip there, a new function on the Bloomberg. You can, seriously, you can uh, monitor in real time tweets uh -huh. by Donald Trump. Oh, really? Yes. <laughs> so, <laughs> I will subscribe to tweets by Donald mm -hmm. J. There Trump you go. <laughs> right now. Here's the latest headline. This, well, this is 20 minutes ago. Excuse me. Mr. Bannon, uh, uh, strategist for Mr. Trump, meeting with Mark Cuban. Interesting. They were seen meeting in New York Tuesday. This was from Politico. Mark Cuban, of course, did not have much good to say about Donald Trump in the latter yeah. part of the campaign, uh, at least. So that's interesting, just to see the the uh, the breadth of the outreach here by the outreach here by the it's, Trump transition team. It's a new distribution of message, and <laughs> what we're trying to do, folks, is give that to you with the best spirit we can, yeah. always citing the source, because the sources matter. I, yeah. I, I still go with that old fogey kind of thing. Who you put your trust in matters. Investors 
have put their trust in independent registered investment advisors to the tune of $4 trillion. Why? They see their role as to serve, not sell. That's why Charles Schwab is committed to the success of over 7,000 independent financial advisors who passionately dedicate themselves to helping people achieve their financial goals. Learn more at findyourindependentadvisor.com. David, why don't you bring in harm bundles, a unit credit on the American economy? Yeah, writing as as many economists are here after three Tuesdays ago, the, the events of three Tuesdays ago, what what happens to the economy under a Donald Trump presidency? Harm Banholtz, chief U.S. economist at Unicredit. Great to have you with us. Yeah, good morning. Let's talk a bit about how your outlook has changed here, first of all. Uh, obviously, many people did not forecast that, that Donald Trump would be the victor. What's changed in your outlook since Election Day? Well, I think by now it is only it's only the balance of risk uh, that that has changed. Um, we because we we wait for some some more detailed plans about about the, the stimulus most importantly, but also what happens on the trade side. So so obviously the the risk to the outlook for for 2017 and 2018 are now skewed to the upside because of the of the discussed stimulus. But I'm also a little bit worried that if the stimulus is passed, that we have maybe bigger downside risk for 2019. I mean a recession, if you just look at the length of the business cycle is at some point due anyway. And, um, but the problem is if, you, if we do get the stimulus at a time where the U.S. economy is at full employment, we, we probably add to the volatility of GDP growth, meaning maybe some better growth in the short term, but, but then also a bit of a deeper, deeper and maybe earlier recession afterwards. Harm, I note the use of your word, the, the word if there at the beginning of your, your, your sentence there, talking about if the <laughs> stimulus package is passed. Has the conversation changed here? It seems that after the election, there was almost certainty that we would see a big fiscal stimulus package. Now it seems like something that's being chewed over. Well, we have no, no. Well, the, the market. I mean, and the market is still reacting like there's certainty that we're getting stimulus, or for right. I mean, we're seeing what what is happening to the Dow and the S and P and and or, or many other asset classes. Um, I don't think it has ever been clear that we are getting a stimulus. It, it, it has certainly gotten more likely. Um, with with the Republicans having control of both chambers of commerce uh, of Congress. Um, but, but but as I said, nothing. The, the only thing that it seems to be certain right now is, is uncertainty. But I, I think that the chance that we're getting some type of stimulus is is, is bigger than fifty percent. But it's not close to a hundred. I think the political that, argument. That's why I, Go ahead. That's why, I use the, that's why I keep using the if. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it seems like the political argument is there for doing it, but the economic one might not be there. And I wonder how much of a dialogue you think we're going to have about that going forward with unemployment where it is, with the dollar as strong yeah. as it is. No, I agree. I mean, the political argument is certainly there, particularly if you're a member of the Republican Party, because, I mean, it's, it's a great opportunity. You are running the White House and both chambers of Congress. So, so you want to you enact some of the policies that you have been in favor of for some time. It's mostly cutting taxes and simplifying the tax code. Um, certainly simplifying the tax codes makes a lot of sense. Right, maybe get rid of some some loopholes, broaden the tax base and cut rates on the corporate side. Um, the question is, uh, in, in my view, and that brings us back to the economic sure. argument, do we have to cut the overall tax burden that much? It could be more revenue neutral. And um, I mean, the infrastructure side, that's really the more interesting thing, because we remember that the, the Democrats have been trying to push for infrastructure spending for a long time. And uh, I, I still remember one Congress, Republican congressman saying several years ago that infrastructure investment is just another word for government spending. Mm. And now that has seemed, maybe that perception has changed. And I would 
hope it, it, it has because infrastructure investment is really an important thing. It, it takes a long time to be enacted, and it has also long-lasting positive um, implications. So I, I would hope that we see something on that. But unfortunately, um, if we get the stimulus, uh, it most likely will be centered around the tax breaks, and, and infrastructure investment is, is, is not the highest priority here. How critical is it who the tax breaks go to? Is that a big deal to a guy like Herm Bondles? Oh, uh, well, <laughs> you mean personally or for an economist? <laughs> no, I think for an no, economist, no, how yeah, big no, a deal it, it, it is absolutely, it? it, it it is absolutely critical. I mean, well, the, the, your question, to, to answer your question, we have to take a step back and talk about multipliers, right? So how much does a given tax cut increase GDP at the end of the day, right? We know the, the, estimation, the estimate of multipliers is, is very uncertain, but there seems to be a stylized fact and, uh, and, and, and stylized fact that most people can agree on <clears throat> that tax cuts for the more affluent part of the population um, has a smaller impact on growth than tax cuts for the not-so-rich part of the population because the latter, the latter group tends to spend mm -hmm. more of the additional money they get. So unfortunately, of course, at least if you look at, for example, the tax foundation's distributionary impact of, of, of Mr. Trump's tax cuts, think that the, by far the biggest increase in after-tax income uh, will be seen at the at the richer ones, if I may say so. So, so that means the multiplier of the proposed uh, uh, stimulus program is not as big as it could be. How optimistic are you that if, if corporate tax law is changed, you are going to see companies like Apple and Facebook bring profits back uh, from overseas? Are, are, are you thinking it's likely that that would happen? Oh, I think I'm not so... Yeah, I think they would probably bring some, some, some cash back. But, I mean, the ultimate goal is um, to spur investment in the U.S., and I'm less confident about that. I mean, we, we have seen the repatriation efforts before, and money came back, but that was then used to buy back stocks or whatever to bolster the balance sheets of the companies and not put to work uh, in, in terms of investment. Yeah, Tom asked uh, Glenn Hubbard about that a few moments ago, how you, in a policy position, get businesses to, to start investing again. Do you, do yeah, you see a path forward? Yeah, get, get them to actually do it. Do, do you see a path forward there? Well, we, we had the pleasure to talk, talk, talk earlier to, to Tom as well, and my, my answer is the most important thing that the U.S. has to change is to make uh, the U.S. more attractive. First of all, you don't do it with tariffs, right? So you do it by, by, making, by, by penalizing companies to do something else, but you want to make the U.S. more attractive. Tax cuts probably help. Less regulation probably helps. But the most important thing is to improve the qualification of your workforce. Unfortunately, there's nobody talking about this. Um, I mean, it's, it's not only about the big companies, right, that have the, the big money, the multinationals who have so much money sitting outside of the U.S. Really, the backbone of, of manufacturing or the, uh, put, uh, the industrial revolution or uh, renaissance, if you want to see it, would yeah. be small and medium-sized companies. I mean, we have so many internationally operating small businesses in Germany or Europe. When I talk to them and ask them about the experience in the U.S., they say but the number one problem they have to get skilled labor, and uh, that sometimes prevents them from doing more. Okay. So that, yes. David Girl, Herm Bondles is brilliant. He sends emails about the next section, so you and I look smart. There you go. So I'm reading from Herm Bondles' <laughs> note. He's with Unicredit. Tom, ask me about the skills gap, because you're too dumb to come up with this question. Now, Harm, help us with the skills gap. On a serious matter, this is an American issue, isn't it? 
Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's not only, to be fair, it's not only an American issue, but some European countries, notably uh, Switzerland and, and Germany, that you kindly called Little Switzerland, uh, they are a little bit in better shape, I think, because they have an apprenticeship a program for apprentices um, which learn the specific skills, including the theoretical background they need for some jobs. And I, well, to be, to be uh, open, the, the, the email I sent was a link to uh, uh, the a report by the Manufacturing Institute, uh, I mean, that's, of course, a, a special interest group if you want, but they, they estimate that over the next decade there will be 3.5 million manufacturing jobs uh, needed to be filled in the U.S., but 2 million of those can't be because of uh, the lack of skills, right? I mean, that's a serious number. So more than 50% of the most likely jobs being, that should be created or would, would be created in the manufacturing industry can't be filled because there's a lack of skilled worker. And, I mean, we don't have to look to the future. Just look to the NFIB, the National Federation of independent business, they publishing their monthly, monthly uh, business outlook. And one question there is, do you find enough skilled laborers to fill your, um, your job open, openings? And almost 50% over the past several months have said no. Right? So th that is really, it's really a huge topic. And as I said earlier, I think that is the main thing that needs to be fixed in order to um, bring investments back and bring companies back to the U.S. Or who's going to push for that to, to happen here in the U.S.? Uh, I recall taking a reporting trip through my home state of North Carolina, visiting a bunch of community colleges, and I was cheered to see the relationships growing between uh, companies, manufacturing companies, and community colleges. Uh, that yes. They were training students who could then get jobs after. They knew that they could get jobs because yes. uh, they were being trained on exactly what that company needed. Yes. Is it something that the government is going to have to pioneer here, or is it something for companies to pioneer? Yeah, well, I mean, I'm, I'm living here now for almost 10 years, but I, on this, I'm still more German than American. I think it's it, it, it's a, the government should should certainly be more involved than it is right now. So the example that you gave is exactly what we need to see more. But if we know what is the right step, why leave it to chance or some some local initiatives to do the right thing? And I mean, North Carolina is probably hoping that no other part of the U.S. is, is copying this because it gives North Carolina sure. a big advantage. But if you are a policymaker and you sit in Washington and you look at your whole country, why wouldn't you do the best? What wouldn't you do what's right for the entire country and then kind of help community colleges and companies to to install these programs across the country. So I, I well, think there should be more government involvement because it's the right okay, thing to do. What is your history, and Harm, you're acclaimed for writing these kind of research notes. What is wrong with just a simple investment tax credit that's job incentivized? Isn't that like policy 101? Yeah, but I mean, it, it's still all about the bottom line, right? I mean, you can give tax credits, but first of all, for tax credits, um, I mean, you, 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 if you still can make more money by investing abroad for whatever reason, right, the tax credit is not enough. I mean, if, you, if, if it's, it's high enough, maybe you give even some subsidies, that would help. But is that really what you want? Is, I mean, if we talk about make America great again, it should, that, that means to me that companies are lining up to come back without the government have to write them checks. You know, if America is great, companies want to be here. Everybody wants to be here. And you don't have to force them with tariffs and you don't have to convince them with tax cuts or subsidies. Just make, you know, just make the, the infrastructure, uh, that means the, the, capital, the fixed uh, uh, infrastructure as well as human infrastructure, great, and the companies will be back. So as you said, I mean, you, you may, companies may be happy to take some of these tax breaks, but sometimes um, they're just very good in gaming the system, taking the tax break without mm -hmm. actually increasing their 
the total investment spending. You know, they may do some, may do an investment project here, but then cut somewhere else. Who knows? I think the only the only way to overall boost um, total investment spending in the U.S. is really is, right. is to improve the fundamentals. Herm Bondles, thank you so much. Have thank a great you. Thanksgiving. He is with Unicredit. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on iTunes, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm out on Twitter at Tom Keen. David Gura is at David Gura. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio. Who you put your trust in matters. Investors have put their trust in independent registered investment advisors to the tune of $4 trillion. Why? Learn more at findyourindependentadvisor.com.